Hi, everyone. This is Chris Conti. On this episode, we were lucky enough to speak with Hamilton Morris from Vice and Harper's Magazine. Our discussion ranges from the importance of journalistic responsibility during this psychedelic renaissance to the current trend of drug tourism and shamanism, as well as getting to know Sasha Shulgin during his final years. Hamilton is currently working on a new novel entitled Blood Spore about the unsolved murder of the mycologist Dr. Stephen Pollock. He also has a new piece airing on Vice's HBO show on April 1st. You can find more information about his work by following him on Twitter at Hamilton Morris or visiting vice.com. Now, without further ado, Hamilton Morris. Welcome back to the Tink Tink Club. I'm Chris Conti. I'm Matt Landis. And I'm Tim King. Our guest today is a psychonaut, a world traveler, a journalist, an editor for Vice, contributor, contributor to Harper's Magazine, chemist, and a pilgrim of consciousness. His works include traversing the Amazon for the psychedelic combo frog, interviewing Sasha Shulgin at his home, and exploring the clandestine laboratory of William Picard. Welcome to the show, Hamilton Morris. Welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Not a problem. So um, I wanted to start off here. Our MO is just we want to further the psychedelic renaissance. That's our thing. We just want to educate people on the positive aspects of the psychedelic community and the drugs they're in. Um, recently, you gave a presentation at the Horizons Conference in New York City entitled Journalistic Responsibility and the Coverage of Psychedelics. Can you give us a gist of what exactly that, that pertains yeah. Um, well, I think that people are very confused about journalism in general. Journalists are confused about journalism. There's, there is no true consensus on what a journalist's responsibility is. And traditionally, if you look at the way psychedelic drugs have been covered in the mainstream media, it has been pretty negatively. Um, you know, there's always been an emphasis on any sort of fatal overdose and there's always been very little emphasis on any positive aspects of the experience. You know, Bill Hicks has a famous joke about that. It's, it's a, a well-known phenomenon that negative drug stories get a disproportionate amount of media coverage relative to positive ones. So that is one thing that I find interesting, but I think a lot of it has to do with you know, just it, it, people have this sort of paranoid, conspiratorial interpretation of the way journalism is conducted or the way the media operates. And they think that, like, you know, that, like, there's some kind of evil overlord, like Rupert Murdoch is, like, twiddling his thumbs and laughing while uh, people go to prison. And, you know, all these journalists desperately want to write about, write positive things about psychedelics, but they're evil editors or in cahoots with the media overlord won't let them do it. But what is uh, really happening is that most people just don't know what to say about psychedelics and they've seen right. other people write about them a certain way. And so they do exactly the same. It's just driven by ambivalence and uh, a lack of knowledge right. more than any kind of genuine political agenda. Mm. And when, and when you look at the coverage of the psychedelic Renaissance, the so-called Renaissance, um, what you see is that it's unbelievably positive and suddenly the pendulum has swung in this opposite direction right. where everyone again is realizes that the thing to do now is to say positive things about psychedelics. That's mm -hmm. how you get clicks. That's how you get attention. That is what is the appropriate sort of coverage. It's true. And just, I think that just this month there was an article in Forbes and there was an article in the Atlantic. I saw, Oh, it's just endless. I mean, if you type in psilocybin on Google news, you'll see, I would say, between 100% and 95% positive stories. And what's sort of unfortunate is I feel that the positive coverage is being driven by the same ambivalence as the negative coverage, largely. You know, it it's, it's all has to do with these sorts of trends. You know, if everyone is saying something is bad, then, then the safest thing to do is to say it's bad as well. Right. And if everyone's saying something is good, then the safest thing to do is to say it's good. And if you can say, hey, can you believe it? 
uh, magic mushrooms have a therapeutic effect. How wacky is that? And that's like the way you can impress your editor. Then why not do that? So like what I fear in all of this is that, that it's not motivated by any kind of genuine enlightenment in the media as much as it is a, like a swinging pendulum of novelty. Right. And this is the novel thing to do. And it could just as easily reverse for whatever reason. Oh, that's really interesting. I hope that's not the case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the talk that, <clears throat> like what you're talking about now that you gave at Horizons was actually the inspiration for this podcast. Like, yeah, for real. Before we, we wanted to, you know, maybe, I, Maybe we're, we're taking advantage of the trend too, but we like to create positive stories too. You know, right. like I, I recently, uh, used psilocybin to help me quit smoking cigarettes. And it's actually one of our most popular episodes of this podcast. And maybe that has something to do with what you're saying about like sort of, uh, like clickbaity title, but you know, but it's true to an extent. And, and that's, I talked about this during that same conference. Uh, one thing that I, I think makes maps so brilliant is not the research itself. Like when I was a little bit younger, I almost was critical of some maps research because I thought it was too obvious. I didn't think that it was uh, engaging in, in really genuine scientific pursuits as much as it was politically oriented. And I was right about that. But what I didn't understand was how important it is to do that type of work for exactly what I have described. The media coverage has become almost unanimously positive. Um, and that's because they chose these, these sorts of experiments and this sort of clinical work that was pretty much guaranteed to succeed. And, uh, and so you have, you know, some of those prestigious universities in the world saying magic mushrooms can elicit a mystical type experience. Of course, that's entirely unsurprising, but now we have some sort of validation that the psychedelic experience exists. Um, in the eyes of the medical establishment or that it um, helps lessen end-of-life anxiety. Um, again, this is like not a, a new revelation in any way. This research has existed since the 1970s, if not earlier, mm -hmm. and they're just repeating it. But now they're repeating it for an audience that is really willing to listen, and it ends up in The New Yorker, and it ends up probably causing some genuine political change and, and educating people. So even though the research itself isn't from like a scientific or medical standpoint, all that groundbreaking, um, the, the social impact and political impact of it is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned in that, in the talk you gave about an advertorial, can you explain yeah. what that is? Yeah, an advertorial is a very common sort of writing that uh, many many people are not aware of for whatever reason. But it's it's common in media, and you know, everyone knows an editorial, everyone knows an advertisement. They don't realize that there's sort of a, a hybridization of the two. That's quite common, and an advertorial is. Uh, editorial content that has been paid for by an advertiser. So it's sort of like a camouflaged story that is in fact um, an advertisement or, some, or maybe both a, a hybrid between the two because it, it's not necessarily non-informational or non-entertaining. Right. So you're saying you have to watch out for these things? Not necessarily. I think it's good to be... I, I don't want to feed this sort of paranoid thinking that is already so prevalent. You know, if you look at any YouTube video, it's just, it's like if anyone says anything critical about drugs, they're immediately saying that it's a conspiracy or that it's not true or that it's this or that it's that. And, uh, and I want people to, to think in a more rational yet critical way, not as dismissive. And so, you know, like, for example, you could write a review of a product and it's not an advertorial. It doesn't, it's, it's hard to figure out and maybe it's better not to even talk about this only because I feel like it's like mm. pushing people in a paranoid direction that is not like I've never written one. Mm -hmm. I know other people that have, they exist. They should be pretty easy to recognize. A lot of early vice video content was advertorial in nature and, uh, and if they didn't hide it. It would be visible to any, um, careful viewer, for example, a lot of the early uh, VBS before it was a you know 
called Vice TV or whatever YouTube channel. They did a lot of work with a shoe company called Palladium and they'd do something about, you know, pirate radio stations or something. And then there'd be a lot of gratuitous shots of a shoe climbing a ladder and that kind of thing. And you would say it's kind of a neutral thing then. It's really not pushing the movement forward or taking it back much. It's just something. There's no psychedelic advertorials. I mean, that's, it's not, I would say that it's sort of a, mm, okay. something to be aware of in media in general. I don't okay. know that it's necessarily uh, relevant to this specific discussion. Okay. I uh, was watching an interview with you the other day. You were talking about how uh, just like uh, any good scientist, you like to experiment on yourself. Uh, how do you respond to people that think that you're irresponsible with your experimentation? Um, I don't really respond to people <laughs> that, that think that it's irresponsible for the most part because it's not, I mean, anyone that is saying that, of course, there will always be a, a sort of person that thinks any kind of self-experimentation is irresponsible mm-hmm. and uh, and that's their opinion and they are of course free to not test novel substances on themselves or test any substances on themselves or do anything remotely dangerous you know everyone is free to choose whatever level of risk they'd like to live their lives and go forward with that risk level it's it's uh it's just a completely individual thing mm-hmm. um and uh and so if someone says that it's, you know, it, it, it doesn't really mean anything as an abstract question. It's too dangerous. Well, what are you talking about specifically that's too dangerous? Mm-hmm. Certainly there are things that are too dangerous to self-experiment with, like MPTP or cyanide or maybe even, uh, you know, there's, there's quite a few things that are pretty much, yeah, too dangerous to self-experiment with. But that's obviously not the sort of things that, uh, or those are not the sort of things that someone like Alexander Shulgin was using. The point isn't to poison yourself the point is to investigate and explore right. and learn a novel and learn about a, a new chemical in the best way possible because a, clin- a clinical trial is the same thing you know, at some point you have to have a first in man study mm-hmm. at some point you have to make that bridge from animal to human and someone has to try it right um, well that being said i mean <clears throat> what do you think of the most promising studies do, being done with psychedelics presently I, you know, I have a kind of a personal interest, which is very closely related to the sort of work that, that Shulgin was doing, which is making novel structures and uh, and looking at either the pharmacology, which Shulgin didn't do much of, or looking at the activity in humans. So there's, uh, you know, when someone publishes a paper that's on the structure-activity relationship of of a new tryptamine substitution or a new phenethylamine or n-benzylphenethylamine substitution. I always find that very interesting. There's a uh, a researcher in Germany, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. It's, I think it's Daniel Trashel. It's, it's, I believe it's spelled T-R-A-S-C-H-E-L. I can double check that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has really published some amazing work, and I find everything that he does very exciting. Um, you know, people think that there's no self-experimentation in the scientific literature, and it's true that there isn't much of it, but it is there. And sometimes it's sort of camouflaged. It's almost like, uh, and in his, he wrote a, an article for a great journal called Drug Testing and Analysis on the role of the element fluorine in psychedelic phenethylamines. And, uh, and below each molecule that he synthesized, he brackets a, a human dosage range and duration. He never explicitly says, I derive these numbers from my own self-experimentation, but he doesn't say how well they were generated. So it's pretty clear that that is a result of his own self-experimentation. And he's just subtly introducing this amazing information into the scientific literature right. without making it a huge splash. This is not the sort of thing that gets media coverage, but it's immensely important in my opinion. Right. So what was what was your muse to to go this career path and self experiment and, and and do journalistic venturing into this realm? Um, well, I was always interested in science long before really any sort of self experimentation was taking place. I, I you know was studied science in high school and in college, and that was when I. I cared about. So I think that when you look at the history of medicine, you see a lot of self-experimentation. It's something that is taboo now, but historically it was not. There have been, you know, very important discoveries made in 
endocrinology and in anatomy and bacteriology, all as a result of self-experimentation. There's a great book called Who Goes First that uh, catalogs the history of self-experimentation. And in that book, self-experimentation with psychoactive substances is almost a, a footnote. You know, this is all, there's just all sorts of self-experimentation that is taking place because, um, you know, from in the same way that there's an ethical question about using an experimental animal, there's an ethical question about using another human being. And um, if you are making something with yourself in mind, I think that you're already orienting your research towards something that would maybe safer. That that could be like a controversial claim. I don't know. But I think I was reading sort of a, on a, a forum not so long ago, some guy was ranting about uh, the difference between these two titans of psychedelic chemistry, Alexander Sullivan and David Nichols. And they were complaining about David Nichols and saying, oh, you know, everything he makes is garbage. Everything he makes is toxic. It's dangerous. Shulgin really had the, the knew how to make psychedelics that were enjoyable. And at first, I was like, "Oh, this guy just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the point of these of this research wasn't to make enjoyable psychedelics. It was to explore, to look at the structure activity relationships, and particularly for Nichols to look at the the binding at various subtypes of serotonin receptors." Um, but then I thought a little bit more about what this guy was saying, and even though superficially I disagree with him there is something uh, deeper in that statement that is true, which is that ultimately every single thing that Alexander Shulgin made, he made more or less of the intention of using it himself. And so that informed his design. Mm. He was thinking, this eventually is going to go into my own body, so I'm not going to do this thing that has a really high chance of being toxic. And if he took it up to a certain level, uh, and it displayed signs of toxicity, he discontinued self-experimentation. Whereas David E. Nichols, who is a, an academic researcher based at Purdue University now, he's retired but works for, the, uh, for NIMH, uh, he was not creating his drugs with the intention of ingesting them. Mm-hmm. And so he made a lot of drugs that uh, that ended up being more toxic and less pleasant because they were ultimately intended for you know, binding studies. Right. And, uh, and that in and of itself, I think changes the course of the research. Wow. And, you know, uh, I thought that, that Sasha seemed extremely lucid in that final interview you had with him. Do you think that, uh, a lifetime psychedelic use, like, you know, Alexander experienced will have a lasting effect on a person in a negative way or see proof that ideas like that are unfounded? Well, he was not actually especially lucid during that final interview, which was unfortunate. I I tried, you know, I that was not the last time that I got to spend time with him. I have over the years become friends with his family, and I've been lucky enough to visit his home and laboratory on at least a dozen occasions. And uh, and by the time I was able to get that video interview, he was very much on the. The, the decline mm-hmm. and uh, and it was difficult editing it it was difficult figuring out how to, to best orient it and I think a lot of people when they saw it thought like oh this guy is incompetent at interviewing Alexander Shulgin but the, the truth was that um, I arrived a little bit late and it was hard for me to ask him a lot of the questions that I wanted to ask him but at the same time you know he, he was such a unbelievably brilliant human being just such an unfathomably brilliant human being that even in a sort of diminished state he's still far above most healthy people um so it wasn't a, a total loss and i think it's good to get the footage out there if only because it teaches people that he exists you know a lot of people just because he's a pillar of the psychedelic community doesn't mean that everybody knows who he is and just whenever i get an email from someone who learned about him as a result of a video that I did. It makes me very happy because I can't think of anything better to do than teach people that this great scientist existed. You know, personally, after reading uh, PCAL, I considered going back to school for organic chemistry or or psychopharmacology. And I imagine you meeting him the first time must have been like incredible. (laughs) A culmination of many years of studying and learning. Yeah, I think he inspired a lot of people to study chemistry. You know, people often reduce him to sort of being like a psychonaut or this or that, um, or, or, you know, being grandfather of ecstasy or some kind of annoying 
title like that, but he was, you know, when you read P. Call and T. Call, I think that he's truly one of the greatest science writers that has ever lived, you know, outside of any kind of drug writing. I think that he really communicates the beauty of organic synthesis, like almost no one else. And, uh, and it's, it's it really, he, yeah, he writes about science and pharmacology and consciousness in a beautiful way. I think that a lot of people who take the time to look carefully at what he wrote will be changed for the better as a oh, result. Certainly. It's most certainly inspirational. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't claim to know much about chemistry to be honest. And the first half of PCAL was so like moving to me and I didn't really understand the second half, but I did read a lot of the, you know, descriptions that he gave and everything. And I, I agree with you. It's just unbelievable the you know, the way that he was able to translate that to words for people. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how, how do you feel about the idea of a rational psychonaut? A rational psychonaut? Yeah. One, you know, Psychonaut that doesn't that may not, not woo may not subscribe to you know certain <laughs> aspects of the psychedelic community. I actually don't like the word psychonaut in general. I don't even you know it's it, I think it's a sort of it's a, a term that only angers people. You know, it's like I would never call myself a psychonaut, for example. Other people have. I would never use that that word because. It uh, it has a sort of pretentiousness about it that I don't like, um, and that enrages males specifically. Um, you know, the, this idea that that like eat, other people do drugs and it's this, but when you do it, it's a exploration. Um, I think self experimentation is a more neutral term, but even self experimentation can become a euphemism for for drug use. Not that drug use is bad, just that you know if you're if you're just smoking weed, is that self experimentation? What is the experimental component of that? Or are you just ingesting a drug, which is fine, yeah. but then it might be better not to use uh, some kind of e- euphemistic term that elevates it to something it isn't. Um, but there is genuine self experimentation, and it's very rare because. For the most part, people don't have access to novel compounds to test on themselves, and those that do have access often don't want to take the risk for whatever reason, and that's a completely justified decision if that's what they want to do. Right. And uh, and then there are people, you know, these people that try a lot of the new research chemicals that are sold online, and uh, and I think that that does, on some level, qualify as being, you know real genuine self-experimentation. If you if you receive a chemical from some Chinese vendor, I'm not recommending that anyone do this, and there's nothing written uh, about it online, you are taking a risk and are kind of testing, putting a toe into a, an uncharted water. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of amazing and I think valuable information online as a result of that. You know, like in 2000 seven, there were only a handful of synthetic cannabinoids that humans had ingested. You know, there was Nabilone and uh, as far as I know, not very many others. Nabilone is one. I'm sure they had done some experiments with HU210. Maybe the uh, acetate ester of THC and maybe a couple, yeah, certainly the acetate ester of THC, which was used um, as a sort of weaponized incapacitating agent, but very few, probably less than a dozen. And now in the last five years, that's skyrocketed to hundreds of compounds. These compounds that only existed in the scientific literature are now being used by people all over the world. And, uh, and as a result, we're learning all kinds of things and you can learn it by looking online and seeing what people are writing. Um, you know, it's it, like there's a sort of form of postmodern market surveillance that goes on in New Zealand where people will write into the manufacturers of these synthetic cannabinoids and tell them, and, uh, you know, they'll find one cannabinoid happens to be particularly useful for treating phantom limb pain. Another cannabinoid causes uh, transient deafness or tinnitus. You know, it's like on one hand, you could say that's terrible that yeah. people are using this drug. It causes deafness. This is bad. Cannabis should be legal. This is problematic or whatever. But on the other hand, that's a, you know, a valuable data point. Now we know that there's this compound that seems to selectively or semi-selectively induce tinnitus in people very reliably. Um, that could be used for studying tinnitus. It could be right. a valuable research tool. Um, for everything that somebody does that's stupid and dangerous, often something 
useful comes out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like for example, people are just in general consuming more cannabinoids than they have at any other point in human history. And, and as a result, new disorders are emerging that never existed or were never known in the medical literature until recently, like cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. I don't know if you've no, what is that? read about it. It's a, it's a very odd vomiting disorder that afflicts people that smoke really extraordinarily large amounts of weed. Um, it, it doesn't seem to be an issue unless you really smoke all day from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to sleep. But what happens, and this has been independently documented in at different hospitals in different countries, is these people show up to an emergency room uh, complaining of overwhelming nausea, saying that they can't find any form of relief except for a hot shower. And sometimes they'll go into the ER when they use up all the hot water in their house. They can only stop vomiting if they take a hot shower. And, uh, and this just seems like a totally bizarre thing. Um, and I've even stumbled across it independently, uh, just in other people. Like there was a, a guy that used to write for Vice named Giancarlo Trapano, And I remember he wrote, uh, an article a while ago saying, you know, oh, my life is terrible. All I can do is smoke weed and vomit and then sit in the hot shower until I feel better. And he had no idea that this was like a, just a perfect description of this disorder. Um, but now they're finding that you can use top, topical capsaicin and chemical in hot peppers and it will mimic the therapeutic effect of a hot shower. Like, there, and it probably has to do with this interplay of these heat-sensitive trip channels and THC which is, and, and uh, CB1 receptors or CB2 receptors because there's a lot of crosstalk between these two different types of receptors. So it's, it's uh, on one hand, you could say bad that this disorder emerged. On the other hand, there could be something really valuable learned from it. Right. How do you feel about daily cannabis use? Is there a limit? Can it deter you from getting work done or... People are so opinionated about cannabis. I almost feel like there's nothing to be gained from prescribing any sort of like healthy use level. I can only say what I do personally, which is I try not to use it daily because I think that it has a a somewhat negative impact on my own motivation. But that's it, you know. But if other people want to and they benefit from it, then whatever, everyone's free to do whatever they want. Um, It's just it's completely dependent on the user. I think that I, I tend to read less and I also just in general would prefer not to be dependent on anything or to crave anything. And if I feel that that sort of a craving is creeping up on me, I, I usually try to recognize that and discontinue use before it becomes a, a habit. But, you know, right, there's a culture surrounding it. It's better than a lot of other things. I'm not in any way suggest like, you know, if someone say, oh, it's better than alcohol and tobacco and I agree completely. So yeah, I, right. I am, you know, I'm not in any way. How do you think cannabis is bad? How do you feel about, um, home, home experimentation? There's, there's like a, a scenario where someone will lie down with, take psilocybin, put on a, a mindfold, a blindfold and earphones and listen to classical music. Do you find that, would that be a ben- beneficial thing? Do you view it as a beneficial thing? Have you personally done it? I, uh, I have not done that. I don't doubt that it is a powerful experience. Um, I'm sure that it, you know, of course there's a long history of use of sensory deprivation in conjunction with psychoactive drugs. So I don't doubt that it in some way allows you to focus more on maybe these sorts of, uh, uh, on introspection if that is your goal. Right. Mm. You know, I I really like, you know, the idea of looking at chemicals objectively and you were talking about uh, how no matter what we have to look at these things, you can't, drugs are important to research to, you know, find out other, other things, other aspects. Like when you did, when you did your self-experimentation with anti-drugs, they all sounded like horrible experiences and you concluded that the only thing we have to fear is the middle which I love, but do you think you could explain that a little bit more? That's a very old article. I probably wrote that in 2008 (laughs) or something, but, um, but yeah, you know, I don't know that I necessarily agree with all the things that I wrote six or seven years ago, (laughs) but, um, but I will say that I think that there's something to be gained from, from 
trying new things that may be slightly unpleasant. You know, I think that that is one limitation of the average drug user is that they conceive of drug experiences solely like a, a euphorian sort of reinforcing experience. But I think there's just as much to be learned from doing these things that may be slightly unpleasant. Um, I'm always curious about it, about what what it feels like to do the opposite of what is generally considered enjoyable. For example, um, a long time ago, I wanted to try a drug called Catanserin, which is a, a, a relatively selective 5-HT2A antagonist that's used quite a bit in scientific research to block the effect of psychedelics. It doesn't fully block the effect, but it, it seems to block a lot of the behavioral effects of psychedelics, and it's been used for decades. Um, and it's, it's been approved as a antihypertensive drug as well and has some interesting effects on sleep. So it's not a particularly toxic substance, but intuitively you'd think, okay, if the 5-HT2A receptor is responsible for the effects of psychedelics, then blocking activity at that receptor is going to be unpleasant because psychedelics are pleasant. It's going to make my life dreary and gray and uncreative and will close my mind in some way. Uh, but what I was really surprised to find is that it does not have that effect. It's, it's really a sort of relaxing compound that does lower blood pressure. But other than that, it's, it's minimally psychoactive. Um, I've never tried it in conjunction with a, a classical psychedelic, but I can say that by itself, it's really very mild and uh, is sort of a, a nice thing to take before bed. But uh, again, that was a sort of unexpected realization that I had as a result of trying this compound. Right. Um, and there's a lot to be learned from that sort of thing. Well, well, what would you consider your most profound positive experience, uh, as far as drugs in general, I mean, not specifically psychedelics, but you know, anything that you've experimented with? Uh, I don't know. And it's, it's, you know, it's like saying like, what is your best day? Yeah. It's kind <laughs> of like a, it's like a, it's, it's, I can't point to a single thing. I would say that early on, you know, it, always these first experiences, you know, smoking salvia when I was in high school, things like that. Um, certainly those are, those are moments where you begin to understand the latitude of human consciousness and understand how much is possible. I think that every time you ingest something from a new class of psychoactive drugs, you effectively expand not necessarily your mind quote as people say but you, you expand um, the, the sort of types of consciousness that you know are possible that are I would say almost entirely you know, people say oh you can achieve all these states from meditation or naturally and maybe you can but I would say for the average person um, many of these states are not achievable and that you are learning something about what the mind can do about what the brain can do um if you have never ingested a dissociative then you don't know that there is this very bizarre deconstruction of consensus reality that is possible uh, from blocking this type of glutamate receptor um and uh and that in and of itself i think is valuable especially for you know from like a psychiatric perspective, um, if you're a psychiatrist and you don't know what it's like to feel manic or you don't know what it's like to feel sort of disorganized type of thinking that might be exhibited by some of your patients, um, you're already in a position to not treat them with empathy because you don't have any personal experience with knowing what it's like to be in a state where reality is disordered in one way or another. Do you think, I read an article recently that it said in eight years, psychedelics will be prescribed. Do you think that's an accurate statement? I don't know. I don't know. I really, I think that it's possible these things will enter very gradually into clinical practice. Um, you know, there are a lot of drugs that exist that are available to people should they want to prescribe them that are still prescribed very infrequently. Example would be methamphetamine. Um, it is a, a pharmaceutical drug called desoxin. I have 
indirectly known people that had a prescription for it. It's extremely, extremely uncommon for possibly obvious reasons, but it is done. It is a possibility to get a psychiatrist to prescribe you methamphetamine. Um, the same is true of cocaine. The same is true of um, some of these unusual synthetic cannabinoids like nabilone. Um, it can be done, but that really only seem to happen in, in rare circumstances. So it's possible that one psychedelic, most likely psilocybin, would be um, moved to Schedule 2, or they might do something like GHB, where it simultaneously occupies two legal schedules, which is absurd and already is a legal... Con you know, the idea of Schedule 1 is it has no medical value. So if you have a drug that occupies the no medical value and medical use schedule simultaneously, it's, a, it's just a, a true, true nonsense. But that is the case for both um, THC and for GHB. But in any case, um, it's possible something like that would happen with psilocybin, that they would maintain its Schedule 1 status, but approve some specific preparation as a Schedule 2 drug that could be used in psychiatric practice. I mean, really, drug-facilitated psychotherapy is not something that's done in general. So this is, like, kind of unorthodox on multiple levels. Okay. I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Ann Shulgin was one of the pioneers behind the uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. I mean, have you, yes, talked, have you talked to her directly about this? Yes, with MDMA right. and maybe with MDA as well, but, um, but, but was doing it in a sort of clandestine capacity. She was not doing it as part of an approved psychotherapy practice. Um, whereas there were other people like Claudio Naranjo, who I believe was in Chile, um, was doing approved psychotherapeutic work with, not with MDMA, but with MMDA and MDA and Harmine and Ibogaine. Um, and uh, it had really amazing results. He wrote a book about it called The Healing Journey that I certainly recommend. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, yeah, I mean, this was done quite commonly in the 50s. There was a lot of psychotherapeutic experimentation with LSD, even with PCP, uh, with psilocybin, um, and even with drugs like PCP that are almost universally demonized now. They, they thought they had value. In a lot of these, they would also do psychotherapy with barbiturates. They would use all kinds of things, which kind of makes sense. You know, if a psychiatrist is just writing, a psychiatrist is essentially a drug dealer, especially, you know, my psychiatrist is like, you know, just a, like a character of a Manhattan Dr. Feelgood. He just sits in his office, talks to people for two and a half minutes, writes Adderall on a piece of paper, and, uh, and then... So, the patient goes on their way. Yeah. That's it. His job is just writing either the words methylphenidate or the word, or the word Adderall on a mm -hmm. piece of paper. He went to school for eight years to do that. It's absurd. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, if this, if this doctor feels comfortable giving people psychoactive drugs outside his office, why is it such a leap to imagine that he might want to talk to them while they're on the drug that he's prescribing or that he might want to take advantage of these therapeutic drugs to try to elicit some kind of self-discovery or right. behavioral change. Do you feel like there's a lot of doctors out there that are taking a step towards that direction that are going towards um, the more psychedelic way, like opening their minds up for their patients? Um, not a lot. I know that it, it does happen, particularly with ketamine. There's almost a little bit of a, the New York times wrote a, a good article about this not so long ago about the growing number of clinics that offer ketamine as a therapeutic intervention for depression. Um, and something about it strikes me as a little bit exploitative because they charge so much money for it. Um, it does almost feel like it's some kind of cosmetic procedure to them more than something that they're really offering to help people because, you know, they're, they're charging like $250 an hour to have a, an IV ketamine infusion, which is absurd. Yes, it seems like you, you have some adverse opinions on uh, shamans. I mean, are they beneficial or is it? No, I'm not. I'm not. You, you can't make any kind of blanket statement about shamans. It's, it's like 
what are you even talking about when you say the word shaman? Shamanism is an international phenomenon that Mm -hmm. uh, has existed for millennia. So I think there's there's a lot that can be described under that heading, but I think that there is a sort of uh, hyper-credulous new age mentality that, that allows people to be exploited by shamans, Mm -hmm. um, which I, I, I know people that have been sexually abused. I know right. people that have been robbed. I think we all know people that people like Kyle um, Nolan, I believe his name was mm-hmm. the the teenager who died at that ayahuasca retreat. Mm-hmm. And it's it's unfortunate that the way people think ayahuasca must be used is in this like quasi traditional or really non traditional because I think that most of the time these are just sort of faux exotic experiences that are constructed to delight American tourists more than they are any kind of like initiation in an ancient, a historic tradition, um, as much as people would like to believe that is the case. And and I find even that desire somewhat obnoxious because, um, it, it, even though it, it is superficially so different from organized religion. Um, I think that there is a, a, an unfortunate convergence in that you are looking to someone else to interpret reality for you, oh, um, yeah. which I think is problematic no matter how it's done. One of the most important things about the psychedelic experience and particularly the ayahuasca experience to me is the uncertainty is the confrontation with uncertainty that, you will enter a place where you don't know hmm. what anything means. And it's your, your job to assign value to your own life and, and the things that you've experienced and how you wish to go forward. And if you have someone else saying, Oh, don't worry about it. You just feel bad because you're releasing a trauma, you're releasing a toxin, you're cleansing your liver or whatever. Then you have someone that's already packaging the confusion and the ambiguity for you in a way that, that lessens the pain. I think that the pain of the ambiguity is the essence of the experience. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, like that reminds me, uh, Amber Lyon, I think what, who was also at horizons mentioned that she was sexually assaulted during one of her ayahuasca adventures. Yeah. I, it's, it's unbelievably common. I, I saw a documentary about ayahuasca not so long ago and, uh, an anthropologist who's really, brilliant came up to me afterwards and if he'd want his name mentioned but uh it said you know i know for a fact that every single ayahuasquero featured in this documentary has sexually assaulted someone and uh and that sort of thing is sort of horrifying when you see these these people being exoticized and, and held on a pedestal and and maybe they are helping a lot of people and maybe um there are these sort of cultural differences that, that make it hard to communicate ideas about consent or whatever. Um, and, uh, and this is just a very complicated situation, but it's a situation that arises when people think this is the only way to do right, it. Right. When they, when they start thinking that ayahuasca is something other than what it is, which is a tea, mm-hmm. and suddenly they're unqualified to make this tea that they need to buy airplane tickets and they need to go to South America to have someone else make the tea for them. They need to drink the tea in the jungle, even though they don't feel the need to do anything else in the jungle, but drink this one tea. Right. Like it just seems so odd. Mm-hmm. And it's really only because everyone else does it. You know, it's the same problem with journalism. You know, you're just doing what everyone else is doing, saying what you think is the right thing. You, you know, you, you think that ayahuasca has to be done in this traditional quote, traditional setting, but LSD doesn't or mushrooms don't mushrooms come from Mexico. They come from, you know, Central America. So why, why is it that you've never heard anyone say, Oh, you've done mushrooms. Oh, but you haven't done them unless right. you've done them in Oaxaca. Clearly you have to go to Oaxaca. Or yeah, or salvia would be the same thing. You never, I've never heard anyone say that, but that used to be the case. That's changed. I was in, I was in, uh, while de Jimenez in Oaxaca a few months ago, and it's the remnant of a drug tourist town that peaked in the, 1970s and uh, late 60s and that is what these ayahuasca retreats are now or that was what these ayahuasca retreats are now rather Um, and it's amazing how short-sighted people are that they think that that they've just discovered something completely new and it was just a few decades ago that this was happening in the exact same way with 
psilocybin containing mushrooms, right. you know, Bob Dylan and mm-hmm. Mick Jagger and, and Daniel Pinchbeck or anyone, you know, anyone who wanted to have the real deal, uh, authentic psychedelic experience, they had to go to Wala de Jimenez and they had to climb the tall mountain and get to the shack at the very top. And Maria Sabina would give you the traditional experience that wasn't contaminated by all of the evils of industrialization and the developed world. And, uh, and now that everyone can cultivate psilocybin containing mushrooms in their bedroom, if they so desire, um, this idea that you need to go to a foreign land to consume them has completely disappeared. It does not exist anymore. And I imagine the same thing will eventually happen with ayahuasca. It'll be de-exoticized either as a result of, you know, too many negative experiences or just changing fads culturally and people will recognize it for what it is, which is a tea that has a tremendous power, but one that can be made by anyone with a kettle of boiling water and plants the way any other tea is made. Right. Well, how, what would you suggest to somebody, like if somebody came to you and asked you, or they said, I really want to have one of these like ayahuasca experiences. Would you, what would you tell them to do? Or what would you... I, I don't dissuade people right. or I don't, especially people I don't know. If it's someone I know well, a friend of mine, then I would be more honest with them and mm-hmm. I would say, mm-hmm. you really need to think about why you feel the need to do this with a shaman or you need to think right. about what you are asking the shaman to tell you that you can't tell yourself and what you're afraid of that allow, makes, prevents you from making this tea on your own. Um, especially if there's some kind of like economic exploitation at play as well, because people in New York especially will pay hundreds of dollars for this cup of tea that costs $2 to make. And that also I find problematic because if, you know, if the point, if some point of this, uh, of this culture is, uh, you know, care about the environment or, or care about, helping people in some way it just seems like on just a really basic level a waste of money to spend thousands of dollars traveling uh hundreds of dollars on this plant when you could if the point is to have this experience and to be changed by it you could do it for five dollars and use the money for something else give it to charity i don't know i mean that sounds preachy and moralistic and i don't mean it that way but just as like a you know if i can play devil's advocate and just say that i think that it's worth saying I think people um, are good for the novelty of it as well, too. Yeah, and if people want to have fun, that's fine. Um, I just don't want it to become this sort of prescriptivist thing where people say that it's not authentic unless you have done this thing that isn't authentic either. You know, mm-hmm. the, the authenticity is the experience itself, not how it's conducted or who is there while you were having it. Um, but uh, if even that, I mean, authenticity is a very loaded word, so maybe it's best not to use it at all, but, um, but, uh, you know, you're saying, what, what would I recommend people do? I would, someone who is somewhat knowledgeable and somewhat comfortable with that kind of experience, I would say, you know, make it yourself and use it with a friend. That would be my, my careful, careful right. advice. Right. Of course, after, I, and this is assuming this person has, the ability to research things on a moderately high, you know, that they can use Google and things like that, which is very uncommon seemingly. So I don't know. (laughs) Oh man. Well, uh, what have you been personally working on recently? If you don't mind me asking, I mean, you you could feel free to talk about anything you've experimented with lately or, you know, any, anything you've been writing or, researching sure yeah well i've been working on vice has a show on hbo mm-hmm. so i have a, a piece on the this current season of the hbo show that should air in early april um although it might get pushed back to later april um about synthetic can- cannabinoid manufacture in china and then i'm also working on a larger version of that story that will be released on youtube um I've been working on a lot of, uh, I don't, this is in a very early stage. So I don't even know if it's the sort of thing I'm supposed to, but you know, uh, Vice is getting a TV channel soon as well. So I, I'm potentially working on expanding pharmacopoeia into a weekly television show, oh, wow. um, awesome. which would be interesting. And then I'm working on a book about the unsolved murder of a mycologist named Stephen Pollock, which is an expansion of a article I wrote for Harper's magazine called blood spore mm-hmm. uh, that came out about a year ago. Um, and that has been a very 
tedious and difficult process that uh, I hope eventually will yield something good. But it's been hard to solve this murder, as it turns out. Really? That's really interesting. I'm, I'm guessing that you're familiar with Paul Stamets, too. Absolutely. I write a lot about Paul Stamets. Did you, did you see that? Uh, uh, the Harper's article. Uh, that universal biopesticide that um, just I just read an article about yesterday, actually. I know that people have been talking. I mean, there, there's been a, a lot of research into entomopathogenic fungi, sort of green pesticides, and uh, I don't know about this most recent development. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the cameraman I work with was mentioning that he'd read something about it, so maybe it's something new that I'm not aware of, but, uh, but I know that the older generation ones were effective, but I think that um, there could be some difficulties associated with them, especially when they're, you know, one area that they're discussing employing these pesticides or these really, these fungi um, are in Africa because they are sustainable and cheap. But the other problem is that uh, some of these have been known to parasitize humans, especially immunocompromised humans. So if, you know, this were being used in South Africa or something like that, in, a, in an area with a lot of immunocompromised people, there could be some problems with um, these fungi right. acting as, as human pathogens. I don't know about this most recent generation. Maybe that's a totally unfounded concern. Uh, but, it's, you know, it's always... I think fungi are amazing. You know, I'm writing a book about this whole book is about fungi. Right, of I'm course. Yeah. Thinking about them constantly, I, I'm obsessed with fungi. But, uh, fungi will save but, the world, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. I love Paul Stamets as well. Right, but yeah. you know, it's just uh, they all they have this that same kind of that same feeling in the, in the fungal community is in the psychedelic community, where I hope that people don't become overzealous and overstate the virtues of these organisms in such a way that they um, end up overreaching in a way and then hurting themselves. Um, but who knows? I, I think that no one is even close to that with fungi, so I'm, I'm happy saying that they're great. That's great. Do you uh, drink kombucha or kvass at all? <laughs> I drink kombucha, yeah. I'm a fan of Oh, actually, I saw you mention that in the, uh, in the Thanks for the Memories PC did. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, I do almost all my videos with this cameraman named Danilo Parra, who mm -hmm. edits them. And he's a, a huge fan of health foods and kombucha in particular. So we often joke. And whenever we're in a foreign country, he's always is looking for kombucha no matter where we are. <laughs> and, and kombucha is not common. You know, it's very common in New York. You can get it everywhere. But then yeah. he'll be in like Swaziland and he'll be asking people if they right. have kombucha or. Or even, I mean, even in UK, it's not very common. Uh, but he still asks every, he goes into every grocery store and describes what kombucha is to the people and asks them. If they, uh, yeah, I actually, I actually work at a bar, and uh, I convince a lot of my customers to, you know, either brew their own or, or go to the store and get some of that GTs. You know. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, we talked to Lorenzo Haggerty from the Psychedelic yeah. Salon recently. And uh, he mentioned that he doesn't take psychedelics anymore because the body load is too much for him. You ever think that you'll reach oh. a point where it's like, you know, you get the message, you hang up the phone sort of thing, or, or you're strictly doing it for the, you know, sort of chemical and scientific standpoint? Um, That's an interesting... The body load is too strong. I've heard that as people age, they're sensitivity increases. Uh, Sasha Shulgin certainly said that. Um, and that is a, a possibility. I guess I would need to know more about the specific circumstances of Lorenzo's use to, to know. And I have no idea what my future will hold in terms of the use of these things. It's, I don't use them frequently enough that, um, that, that I consider that a, a concern at the moment, but I don't plan to in the future. I would hope that I never reach a place where it's, it's so painful that it's right. an, an impossibility. But, um, but I yes, and to some extent, my purpose is to to try these unknown compounds right. whenever possible. And in that case, then I'm willing to sacrifice discomfort if it hmm. yields some new, new information. information. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I have my uh, my first 
flotation session scheduled for next Tuesday afternoon. Do you have any advice for me? <laughs> if I, I maybe don't drink coffee or <laughs> do any sort of caffeine. Uh, it's probably, I don't know if you, I would say avoiding stimulants is a really good idea if at all possible. That would be the main thing because it does require entering a, a meditative mind state that's disrupted by stimulants majorly. Um, but that's, you know, I, I don't know how trained you are in meditation or or how easy it is for you to enter those trance-like states. Right. But um, it does seem to happen semi-naturally, so <laughs> good luck. I think you'll enjoy it. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I mentioned, we, we talked to Lorenzo Haggerty. Uh, one of the things that we talked to him about is how to... He, he, he wants people to be able to talk about psychedelics around the co- like the water cooler, right? You know, like that's what he he really wants. Uh, how do you think? How do you think you should approach people that aren't part of these communities about psychedelic use or about drug use in general? Yeah, it's an interesting question. On on one level, I almost feel that these things are self regulating, and so the people that want to learn about it and that have that curiosity find it and the people that don't don't find it and that there's a reason for both both the people that find it and the people that don't and and that maybe the people that don't find it didn't find it for a reason that that might be an unfair way of thinking about it maybe and then of course there's a more you know leery interpretation where you should proselytize you should spread the world spread the word and, and and if everyone tried these things there could be some kind of great social transformation um you know, d- during time periods when more people were using psychedelics, I don't know that it was necessarily better. I don't know. It's 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 like a, it's a very abstract question. It's hard for me to say yeah, yeah. what what the. Um, I, of course, I would hope that more people could experience the positive aspects, and fewer people could experience the negative aspects, and and that uh, it would have a, a really profoundly transformative effect mm-hmm. on society but they've been around for quite a while and many people have used them and, and it seems like there there is a, a subpopulation that uses them and benefits and and sometimes they continue using them and sometimes they stop and either one is fine you know steve jobs or someone like that is someone that maybe he used lsd a, a dozen or two dozen times and got the message and hung up the phone and right. did something <laughs> tremendously important and uh, cons- and acknowledge the importance of psychedelics in his life later, and uh, and yeah, I think that would be that would be good for a lot of people, especially people involved in neuroscience and psychiatry. People, anyone whose job it is to understand the mind or consciousness or even the brain, if not the mind, I think that they have a lot to gain from those sorts of compounds. Um, even if it's uncomfortable for them, that would be something that I say is a little bit different. Those are the sorts of people that I, I think. Um, it should almost be like a, a like something that they approach as a learning experience, not as necessarily a, a moment of personal transformation, but just as like this is a possibility. This is something that you can experience. So maybe uh, be aware of that and, and let it inform your research in some way. Mm-hmm. All right, absolutely. Oh, man. Well, well, we're almost out of time. I just have a kind of a strange question for you. <laughs> it's a lighthearted question. <laughs> we uh, yeah. I remember a few years ago, Chris saw a picture online of apparently you holding a pig's head. <laughs> you know this picture I'm talking oh, about? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm, Can you explain I'm, uh, that I'm familiar with the picture. I almost feel like I shouldn't explain it at this point because I haven't explained it yet. So maybe it's better to leave it as a mystery. <laughs> leave the mystery. I remember because when yeah. Chris saw that, it kind of like, you know, really, it was striking to him. And then later on, we found, we, you know, we found out who you were, and he put two and two together, and it was like just this revelation for for the uninitiated. Yeah, that, you, I think you that picture really know. seems to to freak people out. I, mean, <laughs> I know that there's, there's uh, you know, places where it's posted with hundreds and hundreds of comments of people oh, flipping yeah. the fuck out, which yeah. is pretty funny. Um, it was... You know, and there's two versions of it as well. There's the original version, but there's the actual photo, which is taken on a beach, and then there's another one that's yeah. a Photoshop version of right. it. 
basement that seems to be full of insulation or something uh, that's made to sort of accentuate the creepiness of the image. But I guess I will just not explain it. Okay. I will not explain it. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. Well, how about uh, where can people find more information about you? I know you're, you know, obviously you're one of the major reporters for Vice, which is, you type your name into Google, you could find thousands of things. But, you know, for for if you want to find more specific information about you, where can yeah. somebody go? Yeah. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, at Hamilton Morris, you can uh, find periodic updates regarding my various projects. I post everything there. Um, my book, Bloodsport, is slated to be published this year, although I haven't finished writing it. So um, it's, you know, it's set up. I... I'm waiting on genetic analysis of of um, evidence that was found at the crime scene wow. of this murder. So uh, that is sort of a, a limiting factor in the publication of this book. When it's ready, I hope that it will come out in the next few months. Um, I think it will be interesting for anyone that has read this Harper's article, Bloodspore, um, to gain more insight into the details of this murder. And or Vice, the Vice Show on HBO is another place to look. I have a blog. Uh, I have an Instagram, I have a Facebook, whatever. You know, you can follow me at all those places and you'll, you'll so find updates. All him, Hamilton Morris for all those things. We'll have yes. links, we'll have yeah. links on the website. You know. But, uh, honestly, it was real, it was an like honor to talk to you. It was. Thank <laughs> you, man. <laughs> we really appreciate it. And you, you gave us a lot of n- nice new insight. I mean, certainly changed my opinion a little bit on certain things. That's I got some great. new gears turning. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think that the, a lot of people just aren't aware when you see this sort of, degraded mushroom tourism relics in Wautlady Jimenez. It gives you some perspective that a lot of people don't have. Um, and uh, and that's something that I, I would like to communicate. But yeah, it was great talking to you all as well, and I wish you luck in the rest of your yeah. podcast endeavors. For the Tink Tink Club, I'm uh, Matt Lenz. I'm Chris Conti. I'm Tim King. We'll tink you later. Hey, everybody. It's uh, Chris and Matt. Um, we just want to talk about how uh, the idea of journalistic responsibility is like covering things, covering subjects objectively. Mm. And we wanted to present this information to you objectively. Uh, if you disagree or if you agree or you want to, you know, give us some insight, feel free to email us, uh, tinktinkclub at gmail.com. Yeah, tweet at us at tinktinkclub. Yeah, we're we're on everything. Instagram, at tinktinkclub. Right. It's very easy to find us, honestly. Uh, you can also find Hamilton mm-hmm. <laughs> at at Hamilton Morris, like we said. You know, you can literally type his name into Google and find everything about him. Right. And Instagram, and Facebook, yeah. and Twitter, and all all Hamilton things. Morris. And he, I'm sure he would gladly debate you on anything that he presented in this podcast. Uh, but like we said, we're glad to we're glad to get comments, emails, anything. So while you're at it. Um, Check out maps.org. That's M-A-P-S. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, .org. We always talk about um, maps. And also, if you're a student, the uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, SSDP.org. You know, yeah. you want to check those things out. Two awesome organizations. They're this surge of psychedelic information and clinical trials and renaissance like we like that as we like to call it um they're two front runners and they're doing an awesome job with a lot of great figureheads like rick doblin Mm -hmm. he's the um the founder of maps he does a lot for the communities all over the place with movies and producing and the nonprofit. But, Anything uh, you can do, man. Send send us your story. Maybe we'll talk to you. Maybe we'll put you on the podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, like why not, man? <laughs> for sure. Seriously. And <clears throat> for anybody that has uh, listened to our episode with Lorenzo Haggerty from the Psychedelic Salon, or anybody that is a listener of the Psychedelic Salon, uh, he's in the middle of his fundraiser right now. If you know, we really, we really should keep that podcast going, man. Yeah, that, give Lorenzo money. <laughs> seriously to keep this going give him, no i mean he, sure give him money give him give him uh buy his book and write a review on amazon is what he really wants yeah that They're too really but awesome. he's he has the whole fundraiser going right he's doing it going month by month yeah, different but, levels but it's only he does he does his fundraiser for you know a hundred days or something right but anyway give him five bucks yeah if you listen to his podcast give him five bucks 
Yeah. Forfeit your cup of coffee in the morning <laughs> and give it to Lorenzo. <laughs> One day. One day. Also, I know <clears throat> you love to hear this, but go to SureDesignTshirts.com. Yes. They're and awesome. Use coupon code TINK TINK at checkout because you'll help us, you'll help yourself, and, you know, we hate promotion, but we got to fund the podcast somehow, man. Got to do it. It's only the truth. <laughs> Might as well do it with a good company. Again, at Hamilton Morris, at Tink Tink Club, maps.org, ssdp.org, and I'm Matt Landis. And I'm Chris Conti, and we will tink you later. Love each other. Thank you.